We left off last time at verse 17 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. So we will pick up there today, and uh, if I move quickly enough, we're going to try to get through 1 Timothy. We'll see how that goes. Paul starts uh, this little passage writing to Timothy, who was presiding over the church of Ephesus. Uh, Paul starts his exhortations this morning in this way. Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Interesting words from Paul. He says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Uh, He already said to count the widows worthy of honor. Um, And here we see the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. And he says, especially those who labor in the word and in doctrine. Now, in the early church, this ruling well Uh, we see the first instance of deacons being needed were literally to serve tables. They were servants. Um, And it's still the same today. Leaders in the church, deacons, elders, they're servants. Now, their roles may look different. Instead of just waiting tables, uh, they may be leading a home fellowship. They may be taking care of a wasp infestation. Uh, You never know. They may be teaching a men's Bible study, bringing donuts Sunday morning, leading youth, teaching Sunday school, or simply visiting someone in the hospital, just praying for the church. These are all things that these elders who rule well would be doing. And those are worthy of double honor. Especially, he says, those who labor in word and doctrine. So in the word, in the Bible, and in doctrine, a healthy, true doctrine. And Paul will talk about um, a healthy doctrine when we get to the, the end of this letter in contradiction to diseased doctrine, unhealthy doctrine. So they, these elders who are worthy of double honor should continue to rule well and do so with a right heart towards God not a self-serving way, but a servant. They're placing others above themselves, and these worthy of double honor. 18 says, for the scripture says, so in support of what he says in verse 17, he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And the idea behind that is just let the ox eat some of the grain if he needs to while he's working, he's helping you to to take care of that crop. Um, Don't take that away from him by putting a muzzle on him. And the laborer is worthy of his wages. Okay, so we see a quotation from Deuteronomy. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And a quotation from Luke's gospel. And these are the words of Jesus. The laborer is worthy of his wages. I believe it's found in Luke 10. And it's interesting to me that Paul is quoting both the, New, the Old Testament and Luke's writing 
a contemporary with him as scripture. And the, the grammar seems to suggest that both of those quotes are scripture. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So this tells me that even at this point when Paul is writing to Timothy, um, he recognizes Luke's gospel as authoritative scripture. Um, and that is helpful to keep in mind in some discussions that you might get yourself into. 19, he says, do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses. Don't just take one person's accusation against an elder at face value. See, if everything has been done correctly up to this point, that elder has proved themselves faithful already. Uh, You know that they're a good guy. They've passed all of the qualifications that Paul has already laid out in this letter to Timothy. Um, And they have assumed that office and they have responsibility on their shoulders. So if one cuckoo comes up and says, hey, this guy, I don't think he's living right. I mean, maybe it's not time to jump on that accusation, but wait, see if more come forward confirming what the first had said. Now, this is not a new principle. Uh, acting on the witness of two or more. Uh, It was really rooted in the Old Testament. It was laid in the law of Israel. And then in the New Testament, John, for one, um, affirms this idea. And he does so in his first epistle. And Paul mentions it here. Uh, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except from from two or three witnesses. Okay, so don't jump on the first cuckoo that comes along screaming somebody did something. Uh, No witch trials. Verse 20, those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all, that the rest also may fear. Now, the context in which this verse is placed makes me think that it's saying those who are sinning, so an elder who is sinning, who is in sin, rebuke in the presence of all the other elders. I don't see in here um, rebuking in front of the entire congregation. I don't think that's necessarily what he's talking about here. I will um, concede that there is probably a time and a place to do that. If the situation allows for it and it is beneficial to the congregation, yes, you may have to rebuke someone in front of the entire congregation. I just don't think that that's what Paul is talking about right here. Because up to this point, he's talking about elders, he continues to talk about elders, and it makes sense that he is trying to instill fear, a reverential fear, in the rest of the elders, not necessarily the whole congregation. So those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all the other elders, that the rest also may fear. And, you know, it's not that an elder is never going to sin. That's ridiculous. Um, I sin, everybody else sins. But the idea is they are not living in sin. They're not habitually in sin. Um, And so that is a very important distinction there. Um, This is talking about someone who is supposed to be living right. They're living according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. So that's what we're talking about here. Those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear. Verse 21, 
I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Now, he says elect angels, and that's an interesting phrase there. Uh, it, it's really talking about the angels in heaven, not the angels who fell with Satan. Okay, um, Elect, similar to the way that you were elected if you were, you were Christ. The foreknowledge of God has elected certain angels to not fall with Satan. Um, if you believe in any kind of election for believers, then we should have no trouble going along with this. But it's not just talking about that certain class of angels, but it's also kind of giving them some reverence as well. We know that they are extremely powerful beings. So here he's saying, before the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that you observe these things without prejudice. Now, this idea of doing things without prejudice, especially in relation to others in the church, is talked about throughout Scripture. James 2 comes to my mind, talks about doing things without partiality. Now, it is certainly a wise thing to guard yourself against partiality when dealing with other people in the church. Okay, and uh, there was a story that Pastor Chuck used to tell about a man coming to him with a million-dollar check. He was handing it to him. Pastor Chuck said, I, I don't want that from you. You keep that check because if I take that from you, when I see your face in church, I'm going to treat you a different way than I treat everybody else, and I don't want that. He handed him back his check, and he said, if you want to give, we would love to, to have your gift, but... I do ask that you put it in the box at the back, and I don't know who gives in there and who doesn't. So he was guarding himself against treating this one guy with partiality. So very important for us to guard against. He says, do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourselves pure. Now, quick clarification for us. If somebody is running down the aisle at me, I want you to lay hands on them hastily. Otherwise, we will wait to ordain elders, um, ordain pastors, um, until we have seen their true character. Okay, so, and that's really what he's talking about, not people running down the aisle. But uh, laying on of hands is ordaining of ministers. And he is telling Timothy not to do so in haste, quickly. But watch them. See how they conduct themselves in the church and outside of the church before you ordain them. Um, He says, nor share in other people's sins, keep yourselves pure. And the idea here is, if you ordain an ungodly man, you are sharing in the sins that he commits in leadership. You're giving him a platform to take the church down. You're giving him a platform to take advantage of people in the church. um, And you are sharing in those sins. Another reason to hold back the reins a little bit. Wait until we ordain someone. Keep yourselves pure. And that goes right alongside the nor share in other people's sins, but keep yourself from those things. Keep those off your record, so to speak. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Now, at this time, uh, we know that the water wasn't the greatest thing to be drinking. Okay, and by this sentence, 
we can gather that Timothy was only drinking water, probably had the case of Caesar's revenge for quite a while. Uh, And so Paul is, (laughs) that was supposed to be funny. (laughs) Paul, (laughs) Paul is saying now to Timothy, don't just drink this nasty water, but use a little wine to help cleanse it in your stomach. And some people will try to take this and make it into a prohibition uh, against asceticism, a strict adherence to, like, say, a strict diet. That would be a form of asceticism, Uh, taking those fleshly desires under control very strictly. Okay, And that's not what he's really doing here. He's not um, saying, Timothy, you are um, taking this no alcohol thing too seriously. You need to go out with your friends occasionally and have a beer. He's not saying that. He is literally saying, use the wine to help your stomach. And it's a very plain reading. Um, and any, you know, any fifth grader who can read can read and understand what he's trying to tell Timothy. But use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. Some men's sins are clearly evident, preceding them to judgment, but those of some men follow later. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those who are otherwise cannot be hidden. Okay, so some men's sins are clearly evident. Some men sin in the open, and everybody knows about it. And those sins precede them, go before them, and lead them to judgment. But those of some men follow later. So some men are sinning in behind closed doors. Um, those things are hidden until the final judgment, when everything will be known to the Father. And, of course, it already is made known to the Father. But to men, it may be hidden. Likewise, so in the same way as those sins were some clearly evident and some hidden, the good works of some are clearly evident. Some people's good works you can see. And those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. So if you do something in the open, people can see it. Okay, I mean, be careful where your heart is there, but all right. If you do something that's hidden, a good work that nobody else can see, uh, that will not forever be hidden. Um, And of course, God already knows about it. But at the judgment, those things will be made known. Those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Breaking into chapter 6 now, let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So, Paul begins instructing Timothy on how slaves, now employees, should relate to their masters or their employers. Um, and we've seen this from Peter. I believe it was 1 Peter chapter 3 that he talked about how we should relate to government. We should submit to government. We should submit to masters. Wives should submit to husbands. Um, and so we see really along the same exact lines from Paul here. 
Let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. So in this first little clause, he is talking about the believers who are servants who are under an unbelieving master. Okay, they are under the yoke, so to speak. Of course, they would use oxen to plow fields. The oxen would be put in yokes. We actually have one over in the fellowship hall. If you want to see what it looks like, you would put the head of the oxen in there, strap them in, and that would allow them to pull the plow. Okay, so it's it's a euphemism for um, just being under slavery, in bondage, working for someone else. So as many as are under the yoke in bondage count their own masters worthy of all honor. So an unbelieving master, you still have to honor them. If you have a boss that's not a believer, he treats you poorly, you still need to honor him. And I don't say that thinking that it's easy. I've been there and I have done my best to honor my master, my employer, um, being an unbeliever. And it's hard. It doesn't come naturally to us. That's why Paul has to instruct Timothy. These are the things you need to teach to the people. Count your own masters worthy of all honor. Now, this is why. This is why it's so important to do something that comes contrary to our nature. So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And this is, again, along the same lines as Peter was saying in his epistle. Uh, it's so that we have a good testimony to these people, so that the name of God may not be blasphemed. We are to be representatives of Christ. And if we are backtalking our bosses who are unbelievers, if we are slacking off on our work, not getting things done, what does that say to that boss about Christians? It's not a good testimony. So we need to still be good employers. We want our bosses to know that they have the best employers because they have a Christian. They have a Christ follower. And so that's the idea of what he's saying here. So that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, so now we switch over to servants with believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. So now he's speaking of those with believing masters. Now, with half of the Roman population being slaves, it was probably not uncommon to have a slave and a master worshiping together if they're both believers. So this is a kind of weird social predicament that some may find themselves in. So Paul is writing directly to this little scenario. He says, if you have a believing master, let, uh, let the slaves not despise them because they are brethren. So, I mean, don't degrade your master because he is your brother in Christ. Uh, you want to speak well of him. And sometimes it may be difficult to do. Uh, that's just the way it is. Let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them. So don't do this, but do this. Don't despise them, but serve them. Serve them well. And now we get a reason for this. Because they are brethren. Rather serve them because 
Those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Everyone wins here, and everyone is, is a believer if you serve your master well. Um, and that should even encourage us a little bit more to be good stewards of their resources, your employer's resources, um, do good work for them, work hard for them. If they're a believer, I want other believers to do well. It's just a, a brotherly thing. I want Cheney to do well. It's a brotherly thing. Because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wrangling of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gains. From such, withdraw yourself. I wish he told us how he really felt, but that's okay. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, that wholesome words is what I mentioned at the very beginning, um, healthy words. And he's talking about a healthy doctrine um, as opposed to a diseased doctrine or something that corrupts from inside the church. He wants the healthy words to be spoken, the healthy doctrine to be taught. Do not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness. He is proud. And some of your translations might say he is a fool. And that's another apt translation. He is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings. The, the word reviling may read railing in your Bible. It's like an aggressive railing on someone. They're criticizing them harshly. Evil suspicions, and that may read evil surmising. It's another good translation. It's just like somebody kind of tapping their fingers together. Ha, 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 I think I know what he's up to. Just surmising things that, you know, aren't helpful to anybody. They're, they're evil. Useless wrangling or perverse disputing of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Of course, godliness shouldn't be thought of as a means to acquire more wealth. Um, if you come to Jesus for money, he's not your God. Money is, right? Suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Don't hang out with the people that think that godliness is a means of gain. That's what he's saying. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain. So he just said godliness is not a means of gain, but godliness itself with contentment is great gain, now and later. So now, no doubt, it will help you in your life. I mean, if you are a godly man, a godly woman, I'm not saying that you won't have trials. We all will. But if you are godly, you can take those trials in stride. And sometimes God will give you an understanding of why he put that trial in your life. Okay, so it profits you now. It profits you later as well. 
we're building character here. There's resistance. We are doing things that are difficult. Uh, when we do that, it builds us up and it creates uh, this character in us for eternity. So it profits us endlessly. Godliness with contentment. Now, contentment is a funny thing. When one of the Rockefellers was asked what it would take to make him content, you know what he said? Just a little more. That's one of the top three or four richest men in the world in his time. Just a little more. Contentment has nothing to do with how much stuff you have, how much money you have. Uh, There's this little hole in everybody that can only be filled with Jesus. It's like one of those children's puzzles. You try to put the star in the circle hole and it doesn't go in. It doesn't work. It doesn't fill that gap. And Summer and I were talking about it in the car coming back from Alan last night. And some people, there's just this little Jesus-shaped hole that they haven't filled yet. Okay, And that hole is in everyone. Some people have already come to the realization, you know, I need, I need Jesus right there. Um, some have not yet. And that is just the condition of the human heart. But godliness with contentment, understanding that you have what you need in Christ, that is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Um, Of course, we brought nothing into this world. I didn't pop into the world with a a little money bag under my arm, um, and I'm certainly not going to leave with one. But there is an investment program. I can send it ahead, right? I can invest that um, in the things that God has me to invest it in. I'm into the church. I can do this with my time, give my time to the church. So there is that. We can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. You ever opened your pantry and complained that there's nothing to eat? Was the pantry empty? Probably not. I've done it. Summer does it all the time. (laughs) Have you opened your closet, complained that you have nothing to wear? Was the closet empty? Probably not. So with these things, we shall be content. If God does provide for the sparrows, and he does, and he certainly will provide for his children. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Those are some pretty strong words. Foolishness. Destruction, perdition, lust, snare, harmful, temptation. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. It's not the money that is our demise. It's the love of it, the money love, the pursuit of it that guides our ambitions. It's that that gets a hold of us. Because we shouldn't be aiming towards money, we should be aiming towards Jesus. In the Old Testament, in, in those days, there was a God called Mammon, and he was uh, the deity of money. Um, he embodied wealth. People would worship him. Today, we still worship Mammon in different forms. We chase after money. 
Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. If money is what you're chasing, and that is the thrust of your life, you will be tempted to do things that you would not otherwise do for money love, for the gain, dishonest gain, filthy lucre. Um, That's why people sell weapons to terrorists. You know, millions of dollars coming my way because I just sold this shipment of guns to Taliban, whoever it is. It's money love. It's the desire for riches, regardless of any moral implications, of course. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. Um, A snare, you know what a snare is. You can catch a rabbit with a snare, set it up in their little path, coyote, whatever. They walk into it. They don't know that they've been trapped until it's cinching around their neck. And the more they try to struggle, the tighter it gets. And tighter it gets. That's a snare. And into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men into destruction and perdition. Destruction also meaning death. Destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So money is not the root of all evil. Uh, Money is not bad. Money is a great servant. Money is a cruel master. We talked about servants and masters. If you are serving money, it will rule you with an iron fist. But we certainly can use money for godliness, for good things, for things that God would have us to use it for. Um, And there are people like that in the world. They're blessed with money, and they use it to help others. They give it to the church, to missions, um, whatever God has laid on their hearts. Um, And that is a wonderful thing. So money makes a great servant a cruel master. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The idea is that they're doing this to themselves. Okay, They're caught in this snare, and they're struggling in it. They have strayed from the faith, from the true faith, that was once and for all delivered to the saints, uh, the faith of Jesus Christ, in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows, bringing it upon themselves. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of my witness. Now, I can line up many, many people. Okay, I got a whole line of people who all do not snort cocaine, do not hire prostitutes, uh, do not drink until they're slobbering drunk. I can line up all these people, and I still know nothing about them. Although I know what they don't do, I don't know what they do. And what they do tells me more about them than what they don't do, right? So we know the things that we shouldn't do. Here are some things that we should do. These are the things that we should 
pursue. But you, O man of God, so if you're a man of God, flee the things that he just talked about and pursue these things that he lists out. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Again, we see the word godliness. Um, I think I mentioned it last Sunday. You don't see the word godliness in the New Testament until 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, you see it eight times. There was something that Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy in this. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. If you exhibit those things, if you pursue those things, I know so much more about you. I know where your heart is. Um, I know the things that you're chasing. And that tells me a lot about you. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. To which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only pontitate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be the honor and everlasting power. Amen. So he goes into this little doxology. He's exalting Christ. He's saying, dwelling in unapproachable light. And that's a beautiful picture. Looking at the sun that just rose in the morning or in the high afternoon sun, that kind of singes your eyeballs. You see that little spot everywhere. That's not even unapproachable light. That's bright, but that's not the same light. Um, This light is, is much more brilliant. Who alone has immortality. Um, that phrase, who alone has immortality, it's saying who alone has deathlessness. And that is what we get to share in as sons of God. We get to share in his deathlessness, who alone has deathlessness, immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. 17, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So he says, command those who are rich these things. Don't be haughty. Don't be puffed up because of your riches, nor trust in the uncertain riches, but in the living God. If you are rich, and I hope you are. I wish I was rich, you know, be nice. Don't be puffed up by that. And certainly don't place your faith. Don't trust in those riches. Okay? We place our faith, as Paul says here, in the living God. Okay? That is the object we place our faith in, not in our money. In 2008, the stock markets crashed. A lot of people lost a lot of money. A lot of people lost their retirements. Um, That is uncertain. And especially right now, things are uncertain. Things are winding up, coming to a close. Um, Even John says that this present age 
is currently in the process of passing away. And we are seeing that more now than ever. And I think it's fair to say that we're closer uh, to the rapture now than we were yesterday. So we need to live in that light. Nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. God gives you things to enjoy. If he's given you a boat, use it for your enjoyment. That's a wonderful gift. If he's given you a wife, that's for your enjoyment. Enjoy that. It's a wonderful thing. He who finds a wife has found a good thing. Who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. That they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come. That they may lay hold on eternal life. Um, What he's talking about here is the person who is using their money well. They are rich in good works, ready to give, and willing to share. And that's a wonderful thing to see. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Wow. (laughs) By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So his final exhortation to Timothy in this letter Guard what was committed to your trust, the faith. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. There are many things that are falsely called knowledge. You watch the Discovery Channel, you'll see a few, History Channel. Uh, 50 million years ago, the dinosaurs, you know, and I watch that and I just think, wow. I mean, I am... Of the opinion, uh, and I think a well-supported opinion, uh, that we've only been here a few thousand years. Um, And I won't put an exact date on it, but um, the Bible tells us that God created the world. And that is the knowledge that I will rest in, um, not in what is falsely called knowledge. And this false science that is so prevalent today, um, it's, it's kind of interesting. The more they figure out, the more that they find, the more dinosaurs, the more fossils that they unearth, the stronger the case for creation becomes. And they just try so hard to cover it up with their false knowledge. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions. So he's talking about the Ripley's Believe It or Not of Christianity. Okay, it's the the things that you won't believe what happened yesterday. Uh, he was healed with the whip of a coat and these kind of things. Stay away from that. Guard the first faith, what was committed to your trust. Interesting, too, that in Revelation, when Jesus addresses the church of Ephesus, they apparently lost their first love. And that is what Paul is warning about here. And he warns about it a couple other times in this letter to Timothy, presiding over the church of Ephesus. Very interesting little uh, tying things in right there. Avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Sad, but reality. Grace be with you. Amen.
And that is how Paul wraps up this letter to Timothy. We'll continue into Paul's second epistle to Timothy next Sunday, Lord willing. For now, let's wrap up in a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed.